Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Many a man has been impressed by the ingenuity of secret agent operations and intrigued by the subterfuge, gadgets, and disguises required to pull them off. Much of what we think about when we think about spies got its start as a part of the Office of Strategic Services, the American intelligence agency during World War II. Here to unpack some of the history of the world of cloak and dagger operations is John Lyle, author of The Dirty Tricks Department, Stanley Lovell, The OSS, and the Masterminds of World War II Secret Warfare. Today on the show, Lyle explains why the OSS was created and the innovations its research and development section came up with to fight the Axis powers. We talk about the most successful weapons and devices the so-called Dirty Tricks Department developed, as well as its more off-the-wall ideas, which included releasing bat bombs and radioactive foxes in Japan. We discuss the department's attempt to create a truth serum, its implementation of a disinformation campaign involving the League of Lonely War Women, and its promotion of a no-holds-barred hand-to-hand combat fighting system. We also talk about the influence of the OSS on the establishment of the CIA and controversial projects like MKUltra. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash dirtytricks. All right, John Lyle, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm so glad that you uh, had me on here. I can't wait to talk about this exciting book, these stories. I'm really excited. Yeah, so you got a new book. It's called The Dirty Tricks Department, which is about the Office of Strategic Services during World War II and the individuals there that developed some really cool spy tech to help win the war. But your background is interesting. You're a historian of science, and you also you use that academic approach on the history of science to look at the intelligence community in the United States. How did you end up in this field? Was it just like you grew up watching James Bond movies and other spy shows and thought, I want to make a career researching and writing about the history of spy science? Uh, well, I, I didn't, I don't think I consciously thought that when I was young. I do like, you know, spy stories and espionage. I think everyone's kind of intrigued by that. And I certainly always have been, but I never consciously thought, oh, that's what I want to do. I think when I got to grad school, I wrote my dissertation on a group of scientists during the Cold War called the Science Attachés. These were scientists who were attached to American embassies abroad. And as I was doing that research, I kind of discovered their connection to the intelligence community. And so that's what took me from kind of this more history of science approach into the intelligence community. And as I was looking at their connection to the intelligence community, I would come across 
the names of certain individuals who kept popping up with these really incredible stories, you know, stories of bat bombs and painting foxes with radioactive paint and, you know, secret weapons and all this stuff. And it all seemed to come back to just a couple individuals. And I thought, oh my gosh, I need to find out more about these people because they're the center of all these crazy stories. So uh, in your book, The Dirty Tricks Department, you take readers through a history of the development of the OSS during World War II. This is basically the predecessor of the CIA and particularly the technology that they developed during this time to help the Allies win the war with espionage and cloak and dagger stuff. And one thing you point out at the beginning of the book is that before World War II, the U.S. really didn't have a centralized intelligence agency for espionage. So how did the U.S. do espionage before World War II? Because I mean, I I imagine the U.S. military did engage in espionage. So how did they Mm -hmm. manage that? Yeah, several of the military branches had their own intelligence divisions. You have the Army Military Intelligence Division, the Office of Naval Intelligence. Domestically, you have something like the FBI. The Postmaster General, you know, occasionally would make arguments that, you know, he should be the center of this intelligence because all information goes through him. So there were these kind of silos of intelligence before World War II especially. This led to several problems. One of the problems is that there was a lot of bureaucratic infighting because each of these intelligence divisions wanted appropriations and there's not an infinite amount of appropriations to go around. And so they're kind of fighting for money. Another issue with this is that you occasionally get the duplication of research. If you have one division that's working on a certain intelligence, it might be doing the same thing or collecting the same information as another division. Well, instead of duplicating that intelligence, that work, it might be useful to have a centralized intelligence organization that can collect and analyze all that intelligence. That way you're not duplicating research or fighting for money. There's some kind of centralized place. That's the kind of impetus behind the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, like you said, this centralized intelligence organization that's created right around World War II. So who came up with the idea of a centralized intelligence organization? Well, one of the main people who spearheaded this idea is Wild Bill Donovan, William Donovan. He's a soldier. He won the Medal of Honor in World War I. He becomes a lawyer. He runs unsuccessfully for governor of New York after Franklin Roosevelt. But he got sent by President Roosevelt, when Roosevelt becomes president, to Europe to kind of see what's going on in Europe. What's the state of things in Europe during the 1930s as tensions seemed to be on the rise? And Donovan comes back from, he went on several of those trips, and he realizes that the United States needs to stay abreast of all these developments that are happening, the tensions that especially seem to be on the rise in Germany. And so he pleads to Roosevelt to please create some kind of central intelligence organization that will collect and analyze information to keep the president informed about what's happening abroad so that the president can make the best decisions possible for the United States. And so he got it going. But when it initially started, when the OSS initially started, it was looked down upon by those in Washington in the military. Why was that? Yeah, for a few reasons. The joke about the OSS is that its nickname in the beginning was Oh So Social because it recruited people from a lot of Ivy League schools. And so it was kind of seen as a little aristocratic. And one of the reasons that that developed was because people who were hired into the OSS typically avoided being drafted into the military. If you were working with the OSS, you probably wouldn't be drafted. So those were some of the knocks against the OSS. Another one was that military officials tended to dislike the OSS sometimes, especially because William Donovan, this man who was leading the OSS, 
was not into the strict hierarchy that you typically see in military organizations. He was a more of a freewheeling individual flying by the seat of his pants. He would try anything if he thought it would work, and he wasn't so much one for a strict structure of military discipline that typically you see in those other branches. And I imagine, too, the other military brass, they thought the OSS were, were encroaching on their turf, right? Like, we already got our own intelligence stuff here. We don't need you guys. Exactly. Yes. Well, this is so one of the problems that the OSS is wanting to solve is this idea of kind of bureaucratic infighting. The idea being that we'll collect and analyze all this information. And so we won't have to, you know, fight over funds or anything. What actually tends to happen is that now you just have one more horse in this race. Now you just have one more organization that's competing for the same funds. So instead of solving all of those issues that it hoped to, sometimes it contributed to them, ironically. So uh, the OSS was developed, they were there to collect intelligence, analyze the intelligence, there was departments set up for that. But then Donovan thought, you know what, we need a branch in the OSS that's dedicated to destroying the enemy with subterfuge. And so he thought, you know, I'm going to start this thing, we're going to research technology we can use to fight this clandestine war. And he got this guy named Stanley Lovell, who is one of the main characters. Tell us about Stanley Lovell and why did Donovan recruit him to become the head scientist at the research and development arm of the OSS? Yes, Stanley Lovell is the main character of my book. Everything that I came across, all these interesting stories, all seem to have some connection to Stanley Lovell. So I really wanted to find more about him when I was doing research for this book. He is a chemist from New England. He went to Cornell for school. One colleague described him with a quote that I think summarizes him pretty well, a salty little Yankee inventor. That's who Stanley Lovell was. He worked in the shoe and leather industry in New England for a while. During World War II, when the war broke out, he quit to go to Washington, D.C. and to try to aid the war effort in whatever way he could. He ended up signing on with a man named Vannevar Bush. Vannevar Bush was kind of the main person who coordinated scientific research during World War II, Vannevar Bush was kind of President Roosevelt's unofficial science advisor. So Lovell, Stanley Lovell, became an aide to Vannevar Bush, and Bush had some connections to the OSS, knew of the OSS, and ended up recommending that Lovell go over there and help Donovan, who was looking for a cunning chemist to join the ranks and help him create some of these devices and dirty tricks, I guess you could say, for the OSS. And what's interesting about Lovell, his development as a a character in your book, is that when he first started working with the OSS, he was reluctant to develop spy weapons. Why is that? And how did that change throughout his career? Yeah, he did have some moral reservations about doing this. This is kind of the main arc of the book, kind of seeing Lovell's transformation over the course of the war. He felt an obligation to really do no harm. This is kind of a Hippocratic obligation that he felt. But at the same time, his country was in war. And this is a country, the United States, that had let a poor kid like him, whose mother had died when he was young, whose dad had died when he was young, who was basically raised by his sister to overcome all these obstacles and be extremely successful. So he was very patriotic. So he had this conflict of not wanting to do harm and using his scientific expertise for good, but at the same time wanting to defend a country and help a country that enabled a person like him to achieve so much. He eventually had a meeting with William Donovan, the head of the OSS, in which he laid out his moral reservations about doing this job, about creating these deadly weapons. He told Donovan that he didn't know if he felt comfortable doing this. He didn't think the American people would be happy with him doing this. And Donovan kind of brushed him aside and said, 
well, you need to get over it. You're being too naive. The American people will be thankful for anyone who can think of a way to defeat the Germans and the Japanese during this war. And also, I think his inner conflict kind of, um, it highlights, the, I think, the tension that people have about espionage. On the one hand, I think people think it's kind of cool that you're using your, you're like Odysseus, you're using your wiles to defeat the enemy. But at the same time, you're like, man, that's kind of weenie, right? Something about it seems immoral that you you destroy people, but secretly. And that's, I think it's a conflict that's existed about espionage and war for a long time. Yeah, and I think, you know, that gets to one of the conflict that that level has about some of his work when he's developing biological and chemical warfares. This is traditionally seen as a this unconventional type of warfare, a really negative aspect of warfare, something we should not do, use biological and chemical warfare. It's somewhat less kind of noble than traditional warfare. Lovell, over the course of the war, starts to change his mind about this, and he starts to think, that maybe biological warfare is the ethical alternative to conventional warfare. Instead of stabbing someone, as he said, with a bayonet and letting it get contaminated and they develop some kind of infection and eventually die, well, what if you could spare a soldier the wound? Maybe they're going to die from an infection anyway if you use biological warfare, but it doesn't involve the barbarous, you know, kind of stabbing them with a bayonet or something. So he has this strange development where he goes from being reluctant to even help the OSS develop these weapons to being someone who's encouraging the use of biological and chemical weapons during the war. Right. They think, well, you're, you're killing them anyway, so why does it matter how you kill them? Yeah, well, that's his idea. That's his, you know, there are, of course, there are objections to this, but Lovell's idea was that, well, we want this war to end as soon as possible. If we want to stop as much suffering as we can, we should use everything available to us to stop that suffering. Yeah, it's going to be barbarous. It's going to be, you know, different than what we're used to. But if that's what ends the war, then let's do it. We're going to talk about some of these specific gadgets and technology the OSS developed during this time in World War II. But before we do that, I think you do a good job in the book of talking about the scientific process, like how they how they came up with their ideas. So let's talk about it. I think it's really interesting. So how did what was the approach in the OSS with Lovell's department on generating ideas, prototyping? Was it a, a move fast and break things? Was it more methodical? Describe that process for us. The, the process within this dirty tricks department, this research and development branch, was really kind of throw things against the wall and we'll see what sticks. <laughs> you know, it's summarized, I guess, with a popular phrase, ask for forgiveness, not for permission. That's, that was kind of General Donovan's MO in general, to do things, do what you can, see what sticks, and then, you know, see what works and continue doing that and then discard the stuff that doesn't. This can be good, especially in a wartime. In something like World War II, it was very helpful to not have all of that bureaucratic red tape around level where he could develop these weapons. So some contexts may be more permissible of these things than others. But yeah, it really was, uh, let's try out everything we can and we'll see what we come up with. Well, that's the, other, the, the the lack of bureaucratic red tape around the OSS and Lovell. It was kind of interesting how you, you talk about with some of this stuff, the president, Roosevelt, was told about some of the stuff they're developing, but it was done in a way that he could have plausible deniability. So if it ever came up that the U.S. ended up using chemical warfare, the president, well, I didn't know about it, but he did know about it. Well, this is something that you see not just with the OSS. This is something throughout the intelligence community and the executive branch going throughout the Cold War especially. There are different committees that's the kind of express purpose of them is to provide the president with some plausible deniability. It's when you're talking about the intelligence community in general, there's kind of what I think of as a vicious cycle that sometimes plays out. The vicious cycle would be 
secrecy that's inherent within the intelligence community. Secrecy enables plausible deniability. Plausible deniability enables kind of risky behavior. Risky behavior leads to embarrassment because it gets exposed. And then embarrassment leads to more secrecy. So it's just this cycle that kind of keeps going. Okay, let's talk about some of the specific gadgets that Lovell and his department developed. And let's talk about the weapons, some of the secret weapons they developed to uh, to kill people. So what were some of the, the ones that were the most successful that came out of this department? Some of the longest lasting ones, well, the longest lasting one is probably the silenced 22 pistol, silent flashless. This was used after World War II. There are some reports of it even being used during the Vietnam War. So that, that, that was probably the longest lasting kind of weapon that the R&D branch had a hand in developing. There are a lot of Sometimes the simplest weapons are the most useful ones. Within the R&D branch, one of the most useful kind of secret weapons they devised was what's called a time pencil. A time pencil is just a small device. It looks like a pencil, but it has some mechanism for delaying a detonation. So depending on the kind of wire that's used, an acid might eat through the wire more fastly or more slowly. And then when the wire is completely eaten through, the time pencil might explode, which can set off kind of a, a larger detonation, something like that. So those were used in conjunction with all kinds of explosives. One of the most common ones was what's called a limpet. A limpet was an explosive kind of charge that could be attached to the bottom of a ship. And the idea was that you would set your time pencil and your limpet, you would attach it to the ship, and then you would row away. And however long later, 30 minutes, an hour, the limpet would go off, it would blow a hole into the side of the ship, and the ship would sink. So those are some of the most useful weapons that the R&D branch had a hand in developing. One of the most famous ones is called Aunt Jemima. Aunt Jemima is basically a pancake mix. I mean, this is something you could bake and eat, but it was a pancake mix that was laced with some high explosive. And so although it was safe to consume, you could actually set a charge to it and then you could blow it up. The reason for developing Aunt Jemima was that it would allow you to sneak this explosive into other territories pretty easily because nobody's going to suspect that a pancake mix is serving as some kind of explosive. So a lot of these devices, you know, the made to kill, but also a lot of them was made to sabotage, it sounds like. Yes, sabotage is kind of the name of the game, especially with the OSS. The military is handling the, you know, the main fighting that's going on during this war. The OSS, one of the main things that it's doing, it's helping to supply resistance forces in occupied Europe with these weapons to sabotage the German military. One big thing especially was to sabotage German trains because then you can't get supplies wherever it's going. So one device that the R&D branch develops was called the Mole. This was Stanley Lovell's, it might have been his favorite device. The Mole was this device that a saboteur would secretly place on the wheel well of a German train, and then the Mole was capable of determining whether it was light or dark. And so when the train entered a tunnel, the Mole would detonate, and it would hopefully, ideally, cause the train to derail. And so not only would that ruin that train, it would also plug up the tunnel so no, no other trains could go through it. So sabotage within the OSS, especially in conjunction with these resistance movements, was definitely the name of the game. Okay, so we talked about some of the more successful ideas. What were some of the zaniest ideas that this uh, research and development department came up with? <laughs> well, you know, I mentioned that 
the R&D branch is just throwing things and seeing what sticks. And so you have a lot of stuff that doesn't stick. <laughs> one of the more interesting ones, probably one of the most famous things just because of how odd it is that came out of the OSS and specifically the R&D branch is called the bat bomb. The bat bomb is the idea that bats will tend to roost in buildings. So if you release a bunch of bats, say, over Japan, they will naturally seek to roost in a bunch of Japanese buildings. And the bat bomb was the idea that what if we attach small little incendiary devices to bats and then we release them over Japan? The bats will go and roost in these buildings, the incendiaries will explode and they'll cause a bunch of fires and it can burn a city down. Instead of having to drop bombs on Japan that might not hit buildings, we can almost guarantee with these bats that they're going to roost in places that the Japanese don't want to be caught on fire. So that's kind of the overall bat bomb idea, which was somewhat strange. <laughs> One of the other strange ideas in the book is called Operation Fantasia. Operation Fantasia was kind of a psychological warfare scheme. The idea with this, it was targeting Japan. The idea with this is that within the Shinto religion, there are these kind of portents of doom in the shape of a fox. And so this might signal that something bad is going to happen if the, you know this fox kind of figure appears. The idea of Operation Fantasia was to make Japanese civilians think that they were seeing these portents of doom in the shape of foxes, and then maybe they would decide to lay down their arms. Maybe they would quit fighting. The way that the OSS, specifically the R&D branch, tried to accomplish this was by capturing live foxes and painting them with radioactive paint. And this radioactive paint would glow in the dark. And so there would be these ghostly fox apparitions that you could release in Japan that would supposedly kind of make the J Japanese scared of continuing to fight. And maybe that would resort in peace. That was probably the most outlandish idea that went anywhere within the OSS. Well, they tested it out. And I think Washington, D.C. Like, like released these foxes in the park. And there were people seeing it. And there were, people were freaking out. They're like, what is that? It's like glowing dog <laughs> running around in the park. Yeah, they tested this uh, in a few different ways. So one of the tests that they wanted to do was to see even if this radioactive paint would stick to a fox. Because the idea would be that you have to throw these foxes onto the coast of Japan, so you release them along the coast in the water, and they would swim to shore. Well, if you did that, would the paint even stay on the foxes? You know, could foxes even swim? In order to determine this, the OSS had some people get some foxes, paint them, tow them out into the middle of the Chesapeake Bay and throw them overboard just to see what would happen. It turns out the foxes did swim to shore, but by the time they had reached the shore, they had lost most of that paint that made them glow in the dark. And then, as you mentioned, in this other test of Operation Fantasia, there were several foxes that were released into Rock Creek Park right by Washington, D.C., and there were newspaper reports afterwards that said that, you know, the people who observed these foxes had what it called the screaming genies. They were really scared of these apparitions. And so the idea was that, well, if it scared Americans, surely it's going to scare the Japanese even more. But they never did actually, you know, move forward with the releasing the ghost foxes in Japan. The bat bomb, that never got put into practice either. I mean, a lot of these ideas you talk about, they were just brainstorming and experimenting. They were just, but they never actually used them in the war. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts 
starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. 
ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. So mostly the technology they developed was for sabotage, but the OSS did think about assassination. Mm -hmm. And so they developed technology or weapons to assassinate targeted individuals in a way so that it didn't look like an assassination. So tell us about some of this research and development here. Yeah, within the R&D branch, there was one specific project called Natural Causes. And that's kind of self-explanatory. We want to produce something that makes it look as if somebody had died by natural causes. One of the methods of doing this was to create a capsule that was filled with some kind of sodium metal. And then if somebody eats, or if you've, you know, slip this into their food somehow, and they would eat the sodium metal, it would cause them to die. But then the sodium, you know, metal would dissolve into salt. And so you wouldn't really be able to trace what had happened to them. Other ways of potentially killing someone that the OSS was kind of spitballing with natural causes was to artificially raise their body temperature for a prolonged period of time. Somehow they, they don't really lay out too clearly how they plan to do this, but this is just the idea that they had that could possibly work or somehow injecting an air embolism into somebody's vein and killing them that way. Those were a few ways that they plotted, or at least uh, attempted to think of ways to produce an assassination that looked like it could have been by any means. So they thought about it. They actually never implemented, put it into practice. Uh, uh, not these, not these, not yeah. that I know of. Um, yeah, not with these. There are other methods of killing someone that were used. For instance, L-pills. L-pills are lethal pills, cyanide pills, or just kind of generally suicide pills. These weren't really given to other people, more so they were given to OSS agents themselves so that they, when they went abroad, if they got caught, they might take their L pill and kill themselves basically before they were captured or interrogated and could divulge any sensitive information. Did those ever get used? Those did get used. Yeah, those wow. did get used. They're not not just by the United States either. L pills were developed, but you know, by several different countries. So they were used not just by the U.S. but others as well. Yeah, William Donovan when he's he's traveling right after D Day, he has an L pill on him, and he almost uses it on one occasion. There are stories of OSS agents who use their L pill, and it didn't quite work as advertised. And they're writhing on the ground for about thirty minutes. Ideally, it's supposed to kill you within a minute or two, but uh, sometimes they didn't didn't quite work as advertised. So in mid-century spy movies, truth serums are often used to get intelligence from enemy prisoners. Did the OSS develop any truth serums? They tried. <laughs> they certainly tried. One of the truth serums that they try to develop, or the, something that they try to use, is THC acetate. Uh, you know, this is the main psychoactive ingredient in marijuana. This was experimented with pretty extensively during World War II within the OSS to determine whether you can get someone to tell the truth. The idea with some of these drugs is that maybe you can kind of prevent a person's part of the brain that invents lies, maybe you can prevent that part of the brain from operating. And if you can do that, well, they're incapable of telling a lie, so they have to tell the truth that they say anything. This, this didn't really work out in practice. If you gave someone a supposed truth drug like THC acetate, or even alcohol is used, alcohol has been known to kind of get people to talk for a long time, you actually 
can get people to talk. The OSS did several experiments on its own personnel, but also on random people. It did experiments on some criminals, gangsters in New York. August Del Gracio was one of them. And by giving them these drugs, these people actually did tend to talk more. The problem, however, is that you can't guarantee that what they're saying is the truth. You can lower someone's inhibitions, but how do you know what they're saying is actually the truth? That's the difficulty. It's almost like, it's almost like torture. If you torture someone, they're probably going to talk to you. <laughs> they're going to say anything to make the pain stop. But that's the that's the that's why it doesn't quite work. If you are going to say anything to make the pain stop, then you can never trust what they say. Well, I thought it was interesting. The guy, one of the guys who's heading up the truth serum work, and like experimenting with marijuana, he was actually, it was the guy, am I right? that He was actually in charge of the narcotics. Yes. Like he enforced narcotics law, but when he was worth the OSS, he was actually giving gangsters narcotics. Exactly. He was uh, kind of trying to clean the streets of drugs by day and at the night he was doling out drugs to people surreptitiously to see if they actually worked as truth drugs. I think the, the guy you're referring to is George White. He is a narcotics officer for the Bureau of Narcotics. I mean, his job is to get drugs off the street. But Stanley Lovell, when he's trying to figure out who he's going to test these truth drugs on, he has no connections to drugs or he doesn't know who he can try them out on. And so he basically hires George White to help him. So Lovell gives these drugs to George White and then George White uses these drugs on his criminal informants to see if they will talk about incriminating stuff. If the informants do, well, that means that, you know, maybe the drugs worked and he can report back to Stanley Lovell that this is a good truth drug. Isn't that illegal? Um, probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, that was another kind of the interesting thing with the OSS with some of the stuff they were developing. A lot of the stuff they would, they throw in an idea and someone would say, well, that's illegal. I think there was one instance where they were working on counterfeit documents, creating like phony money. Mm -hmm. And someone's like, no, you can't do that. That's illegal. And they're like, well, we're going to do it anyways. And they did it. Yeah, this is one of the things I, I, I kind of come back to at the end of the book, thinking about in wartime especially, wartime seems to justify otherwise criminal things. People seem to be more forgiving of doing certain actions in wartime than any other time because, you know, it just comes back to the idea that when you're under distress, it's in your best interest to defend yourself, to do anything you can to get out of that distress. So war kind of justifies these criminal acts, or seems to. It's used as a justification for these criminal acts. This is going to lead to a lot of trouble after World War II, because some of these same things that we're talking about are going to continue into the CIA, and they're not going to have that same kind of justification, or at least people aren't going to view it the same way, and it's going to lead to a lot of kind of abuses of power. Yeah, we'll talk about that. So any other mind control technology that the OSS tried to experiment with during World War II? The main thing, I guess, would be the truth drugs. Something that ties into that, I guess, are these disinformation campaigns trying to convince people of believing certain things that aren't necessarily true. One of the most prominent disinformation campaigns, or at least kind of the popular ones nowadays that happened uh, during World War II from the OSS, is called the Lonely League of War Women. The idea is that the OSS would drop kind of pamphlets over Germany or German troops. And these pamphlets would basically say, there is a league of lonely war women in Germany, and they are going to sleep with any German soldier who is wearing a specific pin on their lapel. Now, on the face of it, this seems like, why would the OSS invent this 
idea that there are women who are wanting to sleep with German soldiers. That doesn't really make sense. The idea, though, is to make the German soldiers think, well, who are these war women in Germany? Who are these women in Germany who are willing to sleep with all these soldiers? And, you know, obviously, the German soldiers might start to think to themselves, well, could it be my wife? Could it be my girlfriend who's being recruited to join this league of lonely war women to sleep with all these soldiers? And it might discourage the German soldiers because they're going to think of their girlfriend sleeping with someone else, and they'll want to go back home and not really fight. So that, that was one attempt to kind of manipulate ideas in, in Germany at the time. So we mentioned they did some counterfeiting. So the forgeries were an important part of the OSS's work. Why was that important in their espionage work? One of the main things that the OSS does is send undercover agents abroad to either gather information or to train resistance groups that are operating in Europe. And so if you're sending an undercover agent abroad, they better have a good cover story. They better have a good disguise. And papers are necessary, completely necessary for that disguise. You're going to need a fake passport. You're going to need fake ration tickets, fake train tickets, fake money, all kinds of, not necessarily fake, but forgeries that look real. And so that's why these forgery operations are really important. Again, the R&D branch sponsors one of these forgery operations called the Documents Division. And that's its whole job is to produce passports that look real, to produce money, to produce ration tickets, all kinds of things that these undercover agents are going to need when they go into Europe. This reminded me of The Great Escape, right? They had a documents department. Right, to create all the, give the papers to the escaping prisoners so that once mm-hmm. they were in France or wherever, they could get to safety. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really impressive the amount of detail that goes into producing these documents. You know, in order to, it, it's not just enough to give someone a, a fake document that looks real at least on the surface. You have to make sure that the exact kind of paper is being used, the exact kind of ink is being used. You know, there are reports of these forgers roughing up the edges of the paper with sandpaper to make it look like it's a little bit worn. There are cases of them throwing it on the floor of the office and walking over it to make it look worn. You have to get the specific stamps from the specific region. So you have to have an artist who can recreate specific stamps from wherever this document is supposedly coming from. If you're taking pictures, you better make sure that you're taking the picture in the same kind of style that the picture is supposed to be in. For German passports, you weren't supposed to show one of your ears. And so if you didn't know that, you might show someone on a passport, take a picture where they have both their ears in the photo, but then that would be an obvious forgery because that's not supposed to be there. Well, another thing too, the agents, a lot of them got training on how to forge signatures or forge handwriting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is one of my favorite parts of the book is talking about who these forgers are and how they're training people. In some circumstances, the OSS would hire criminals to help train people how to forge things. Criminals who had forged like U.S. government money because they had they had some good training. They they were good at forging signatures and all kinds of things. One of these criminals is referred to as Jim the Penman. He supposedly could look at someone's name, pick out a suitable pen or quill, and recreate their signature up and down the page. And he would bet someone five dollars that they couldn't pick out their original one. And, and so he he was hired basically to teach some of these agents how to do forgeries, how to study someone's handwriting and the movements of the wrist in order to recreate exactly how they write. Did the OSS develop any Mission Impossible-like disguise technology? There are, well, there are several different ways that the OSS disguised people. 
The best ones actually tend to be fairly simple. You know, if you want to disguise someone, you can put iodine on their teeth to make their teeth a little yellow. You might put some whitener on their temples to make them look a little older. You might put charcoal pencil in their wrinkles to make their wrinkles deeper and make them look older. Put some newspaper in their shoes to make them taller. Stuff their cheeks with cotton in order to kind of change the shape of their face. Um, but there are instances, really dramatic changes happening. There are a few people who undergo like facial reconstruction surgery to change the shape of their chin in order to, so that they would not, you know, be recognized in somewhere that they otherwise might have been. And there are there are ways of altering your appearance to also help you on your undercover mission, not just changing your physical appearance, but also changing the things that you carry with you. So for instance, the OSS, the, this R&D branch, developed all kinds of things with message chambers in them, like a pencil that had holes drilled into it where you could stuff a carefully rolled up paper, a belt that had a secret message chamber in there where you could stuff messages, shoes that had false bottoms where you could put things in. There are accounts of buttons that the OSS created. These buttons would screw on the opposite way that a typical screw thread grows so that you could put something in the button, screw it on in the opposite way that you would typically do. And then if someone was suspicious of this button, they might try to unscrew it, but they probably would, you know, by unscrewing it, they would actually screw it in because the threads were wound the opposite way. Uh, one of the most ingenious ways to deliver messages secretly was by melting lipstick. And then you would put a message in the lipstick, you would recast it, and then give it to, you know, some woman who would then take it somewhere. And, you know, it's within the lipstick, so it's really easily concealed. So besides developing spy gadgets, the OSS also developed innovative hand-to-hand combat styles. And they brought in a guy named William Fairbairn. Uh, So tell us about this guy and his Shanghai street fighting style that he taught OSS agents. (laughs) Yeah, this is one of the most kind of uh, odd characters uh, of the entire book, William Fairbairn. He he was a former British Royal Marine. He had been stationed in Shanghai, kind of deterring criminal gangs, monitoring red light districts, that kind of thing. And while he was in Shanghai, this is before World War II, he had been in a number of street fights, and he had been beaten up by gangs and almost dead. And one time after he was beaten up by a gang, he woke up in a hospital, and he started thinking to himself that he needs to kind of develop uh, the fighting skills in order to protect himself. So he starts taking jujitsu classes, and he eventually devises his own system of fighting called gutter fighting. Um, gutter fighting is basically, there are no rules. That is gutter fighting. There are no rules. Gouge out somebody's eyes, throw sand in their eyes, you know, jab their chin, do anything that you can in order to basically incapacitate someone who's trying to incapacitate you first. So he develops this before World War II. And then when the war breaks out, he's hired by the OSS and he works with the kind of British equivalent as well to train these agents in how to fight. And again, some of the most... uh, Common techniques within gutter fighting would be like the chin jab. You thrust your hand into someone's chin. He, he commonly refers to grabbing someone's testicles, you know, just doing anything you can to incapacitate someone. Yeah, it's just like, it's just cheap. <laughs> it's just, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very cheap. <laughs> yeah, very cheap fighting. And yeah, he drew a crowd, like people like to come watch demonstrations he'd put on. And he was kind of, he was a big draw. He's a crowd pleaser. He definitely was. And in fact, he was taken to see President Roosevelt 
before, and he demonstrated some of his fighting techniques, and people were really impressed by what he was doing. He would put on demonstrations for the OSS hierarchy, and he would ask some of his recruits, some the really large recruits, to come at him and try to throw him off the stage. And before they knew what had hit him, basically, they had found themselves falling on the front rows of the audience, and he was standing at the front of the stage, kind of the star of the show. So yeah, he was, he was uh, definitely something else. <laughs> So what was the track record of the OSS and the Dirty Tricks Department? I mean, how big of a role did they play in the war effort? Their biggest role, especially the R&D branch, is really helping these resistance forces, supplying them with things like the mole or other ways to sabotage trains. That's probably the most effective thing that this R&D branch specifically did. As far as the OSS in general... It was really important that the United States had good intelligence from abroad. That's probably the most important thing the OSS did is gather intelligence and have analysts back home who could analyze that intelligence and figure out where are German troops moving, where are they stationed, how many people do they have. So that's probably the most important thing the OSS did. But as far as the R&D branch specifically, helping the resistance forces in Europe sabotage the German military is probably its most important contribution to the war effort. And what happened to the OSS after the war ended? Once the war ended, the OSS pretty much dissolved. It had been effective during the war, but after the war, there were a few reports that came out, specifically one report, the Park Report, and it was written by someone who is affiliated with military intelligence, so there's this kind of bureaucratic rivalry, and they just lambasted the OSS, saying that it didn't do anything, it was ineffective, and uh, so the OSS eventually gets basically dissolves after World War II. A few components of it do survive, or did survive, the research and analysis branch, which was analyzing intelligence that was coming in from abroad, that moved to the State Department. But otherwise, most of the OSS is pretty much liquidated. And then eventually, a couple years later, the CIA formed. How did the ethos of the Dirty Tricks Department carry over to the CIA? Yeah, in a few ways. So a lot of the people who have been involved with the OSS eventually join with the CIA. So it's a, it, a similar kind of culture develops there. The CIA is created in 1947 by the National Security Act. And the kind of main head of the CIA pretty quickly after that is Alan Dulles. He's going to be the longest serving director of central intelligence. He starts wondering what kind of branches he should create with the CIA. And he actually talks with Stanley Lovell, the head of this R&D branch, and he asks him, do you think I should create a branch within the CIA that does something similar to what your R&D branch did during World War II? And Lovell says, I, I, I think you should. And so the CIA eventually develops a branch called the TSS, the Technical Services Staff. And it does a lot of similar things to what the R&D branch did during World War II. Another really important kind of consequence or influence that the OSS has on the CIA is that a lot of the people within the CIA get inspired by what happens within the OSS and particularly what was going on within that R&D branch. So Lovell, Stanley Lovell, had been experimenting with truth drugs and building gadgets and thinking about assassinations. These same kind of ideas get taken up by specific people within the CIA. And then how did that play out in the CIA? And how did that eventually lead to some controversy? Yeah, one of the main things this is going to lead to is that in 1953, the CIA creates a program to investigate mind control. Is mind control possible? And if so, how might we achieve it? 
This program is called MKUltra, kind of a notorious program that the CIA has. The head of this program was a man named Sidney Gottlieb. Sidney Gottlieb, like Stanley Lovell, was a chemist, and he was the head of MKUltra, this mind control program. And when he first started this program, he was asking himself, he didn't really know how to study mind control. You know, he hadn't been involved in this kind of thing before. And so he starts looking at historical records, trying to figure out what things he should do. What should he investigate? Well, he actually comes across the OSS files of the R&D branch. And in those files, he's kind of inspired to do a lot of things that the R&D branch had done, except this time he's now not doing it during wartime. He's doing it during peacetime. It's Cold War, but peacetime. And so Sidney Gottlieb is pretty directly inspired by Stanley Lovell to conduct a lot of these experiments that happen under MKUltra, especially drug experiments, like truth drug experiments. And some of those experiments, they were basically giving LSD to people, right? Yes, yeah. Well, okay, so here's another connection. The OSS, remember when it's conducting these drug experiments, Lovell had hired this narcotics officer named George White to conduct those THC experiments. Who does Sidney Gottlieb hire for MKUltra to slip LSD to people? George White. The same exact George White, the same person. So there's a really direct connection between these two branches and programs. And again, that's the point you make is that this stuff that the CIA did during peacetime. It was, you know, people kind of looked to gave a blind eye during wartime. Well, it's war. We got to do what we got to do. In peacetime, things change. Yes, yes. This is kind of one of the concluding things of the book. Sidney Gottlieb and MKUltra are doing things that are pretty similar to all the things that the RMD branch was up to during World War II. Well, John, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Thank you so much. Um, yeah, your questions were really well thought out. So I think that really contributed to a great conversation. Uh, if, if someone wants to know more, the best place probably to learn more about this or to at least keep up with my work is on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at John Lyle, J-O-H-N-L-I-S-L-E. So, uh, you know, I post occasionally pictures from the archives. If I, if I come across interesting documents, Twitter is mostly where I post, you know, kind of interesting things like that. And uh, I guess if anyone wants to, you can visit my website, johnlylehistorian.com. And that doesn't have too much, but it's just kind of a summary of some of the things that I've been interested in, the future work that I'm going to be doing. And uh, yeah, so those are probably two best places. Fantastic. Well, John Lyle, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been great. My guest today is John Lyle. He's the author of the book, The Dirty Tricks Department. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, johnlylehistorian.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash dirty tricks, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And while you're there, make sure to sign up for our newsletter. There's a weekly or daily option. They're both free. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLIUS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us your feed off a podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.